Life is for the Living, a podcast where we talk to people in their late 60s and older about their lives, lessons they have learned, and any advice they might have. This is your host, Rebecca Richmond. In this episode, we will explore Quakerism and spirituality in general, including why our guests became Quakers, if they still consider themselves Quakers, what conflicts they have with Quakerism, and their view on God and spirituality in general. Before we begin, a quick primer on Quakerism. The Religious Society of Friends, informally known as Quakers because they supposedly quaked or trembled before God, was founded by George Fox in the 1600s. The core belief on which Quakerism is founded is that individuals can have an immediate relationship with God and do not need ordained clergy to act as an intermediary. This belief was generally considered blasphemous in 17th century England and a challenge to the proper social and political order. Fox and his followers were persecuted, whipped, jailed, and even hung for their beliefs. Nonetheless, Quakerism grew in popularity, particularly among women due to its emphasis on equality, and eventually Pennsylvania was founded as a Quaker colony. There are four testimonies in Quakerism, equality, simplicity, peace, and truth. However, these testimonies cannot always be honored at once, so each Quaker must act based on what they feel the light of God leads them to do, which can cause conflict both within an individual and within the Quaker meeting. There are Quakers who acted as stops or transport on the Underground Railroad, despite the fact that it required them to lie to slave catchers, because they felt that in that case, equality was more important than the truth. But there were also those Quakers who did not participate in the Underground Railroad because they felt that lying was an offense to God. In particular, the question of whether or not violence is ever justified is one that Quakers have struggled with since the beginning and continue to struggle with today, as we will see with our guests. Now to our guest, starting with Dave, my dad. Well, I, had, I knew I had ancestors who were Quakers, and it turns out uh, we're all descended from uh, my, my side of the family, from a man by the name of Richard Lippincott, who was an early um, Quaker. Uh, apparently, he was convinced by George Fox himself and actually knew George Fox and moved to um, New England uh, in Boston in uh, the 1660s and was uh, summarily kicked out of Boston. I was lucky he wasn't hung like some of the Quakers were. So, yeah, um, and I had that background. So when your mother and I got to talking about, well, how are we going to educate children on uh, religion? Because I think uh, they need to know something about this. And uh, we went back and forth. And I said, well, probably the best thing would be to take them either to the Unitarian Church or, and I said, well, maybe the Quakers, because I, well, we found the Quaker meeting in uh, in uh, Las Cruces, and the uh, first person we talked to was Mary Brown, and that, that settled it, because Mary Brown was such a wonderful person. 
And uh, so we stayed with the meeting for quite a number of years. Would you still consider yourself a Quaker? Um, in some ways, yeah. Um, in others, maybe not. Um, I don't believe in war, but I also, unlike some of my Quaker friends, realize that occasionally, like clean, taking out the garbage, you sometimes have to fight. And it's not a glorious thing. It's not something you should be um, you know, venerated for, nor should you be uh, beaten up on. Um, because, you know, if you're forced to go and, and serve, um, that's the fault. Uh, if there is any fault there, it's the fault of the authorities. But there are occasions when the war is necessary. It's still evil. I, 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 I believe that it is definitely evil, even if it's fought for good reasons. But Sometimes it's necessary. And I would this is the Civil War and World War II as being two necessary wars that were definitely had a lot of evil in them on both sides, but mostly on the other side, unfortunately. There were people who were very, very evil involved. Um, but in some ways, I consider myself more of a Zen Buddhist or a um, Stoic. I am very much attracted to both of those philosophies. And Stoicism is sort of like Zen Buddhism in many ways. The thing I really like about both of them is they don't necessarily have a mythology that includes god or goddesses or gods or anything like that. Just basically, how should I live? Okay. So would you say you do not believe in God? I... I've got an open mind on that. I, I, I consider myself an agnostic. I believe that there may be a God, but if there is a God, that entity, male, female, non... Uh, Non-binary? Non-binary, uh, whatever. Uh, or if there's gods or goddesses. Um, they're too far beyond my ken to understand them. I, I believe, agree with Darwin that... Uh, there is a God, uh, we would be very much like a dog trying to figure out the mind of Newton. And it may be even worse than that. I don't know. Because look at the universe. It's a marvelous thing. Why does it even exist? I don't know. And I don't know, don't know that anybody can know, scientist or theologian. Marsha, our next guest, is likewise a little bit ambivalent about Quakerism, but still does attend. It's, it sounds like you do consider yourself a Quaker. I do, but you know what, Rebecca? I have never formally joined Quaker meeting. I have gotten questions about that. Um, I do consider myself as following the Quaker path. I'm not sure I would call myself a Quaker, although other people call me that. Um, I'm... I'm not sure that I really believe in God. I believe that there is the potential for good in everyone. It isn't always realized. It isn't always recognized. Um, and sometimes it almost never surfaces in some people. But I think it's there. And I think that's as close as as I can come to saying what what God would be if, if I were going to, but I'm not uncomfortable with not being, with not, with saying that I don't necessarily believe in God as, 
as most Christians do. And I'm not sure that I would consider myself a Christian. I don't have problems with other religions unless they're restrictive in what other people can do other than themselves. So that's, I think what I admire most about Quakers is the acceptance that they have in the belief that there is the possibility for people to do good and to help others. And, and they are also, I think the most interesting group of people that you can run into, they're just very diverse and um, it's, you know, for me, it's been a come and go. I think I went to meeting for 18 years. And I think when Josh joined the army, I thought, I don't think I'm a very good Quaker. Josh is Marsha's son. And then I didn't go for 18 years. And then I, a few years ago, I thought, you know, this is silly. Um, I enjoyed it. I I like the people uh, and started going again. You weren't brought up in the Quaker meeting, though. No, I was brought up as a Methodist and in a small town Methodist church. My father's mother was raised in the Catholic in the Quaker church, and it was a programmed church. And I remember dad saying to me once when when he knew that I was going to Quaker meeting, he said, well, you you could have asked. I would just if they were visiting, I would just go and and go to meeting. And he said, well, you know, you could have taken us with you. And I just thought it would seem too strange to them. So I never had. But I wish I had now. But that's in retrospect. So that's how you got introduced to Quakerism? Um, no, it really wasn't because he never um, he never said anything about that. In fact, I, I'm not sure I even knew that she was. I Actually, I knew that she was, um, had been a Quaker, but he never talked about it. And I, I don't know that he ever went to a Quaker meeting because I think when she got married, it was they went to a, a Protestant church, not, not Quaker. Um, no, I saw an item in the paper that just said Quaker meeting was... And I know I've done some reading. I've run some, read some of Jen DeHartog's books and was interested. It just seemed like a more interesting religion than others. Uh, but no, I didn't know anyone who was a Quaker. Uh, so it was, it was totally new. And the first meeting I went to, I don't know if you knew the Hussies, uh, Edith and Albert Hussey. They would have been, you would have been really young. It was Edith and Albert Hussey and Jane and Archie Roth. The first time I went to meeting, and Elaine Murray. And Elaine wasn't always there because she worked in the hospital. So, you know, I'm not sure she was there the first time. But I remember sitting in meeting with those two couples and, and not knowing what I was supposed to do other than sit there and looking up and looking. And Archie Roth was sitting across the arena, you know, four people, five chairs was sitting across the room and he was looking up at the same time. Um, and, you know, we both just sort of sat there and stared and looked around. I didn't know that was the first time that Archie had ever been to meeting either. He, he told me sometime later that, that was his first experience with it. So we both clearly were um, 
and Jean was, um, so I don't know how new it was for her. I don't think she was raised as a Quaker. And they ended up moving to Socorro and they became, I just, I really valued them. Archie was, he had a lot of physical problems, but Jean was, had been a, an elementary school teacher, probably still was when I first met her in Messiah, I guess. And I just really valued her. She was just a really, really good person. Next, let's hear from Al, whose father became a Christian scientist as a rejection of his father's Judaism. Do you consider yourself a Quaker now? Yeah. What what drew you to Quakerism? Well, it's interesting. Uh, When I was a young boy, uh, I can remember in church saying, gee, it would be great if there was a religion in which the parishioners did the preaching. I, this is amazing. I, I, I can remember thinking that when I was seven or eight or nine years old. You, you know, the, 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 the Christian science service is extremely traditional. Actually, it's, it's extremely, uh, it's, this is interesting. <clears throat> My father, really didn't like Orthodox religion. He thought Orthodox religion, Catholicism, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, he thought Orthodox religions were horrible. They were the, they, they were the greatest impediment to human progress in the world, Orthodox religion. But in some ways, Christian science is very Orthodox because the, the, the service consists of readings from the Bible, and readings from uh, Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures by Mary Baker Eddy, the prophet. And that's it. There is no, nobody's talking about today or uh, trying to relate it to today. The only words that you hear in a Christian science service are words that were written thousands of years ago or a hundred years ago. And uh, so, uh, but I remember thinking to myself, gee, it'd be great if uh, a religion in which the parishioners did the preaching. And in some ways, I think I, I was, I had a kind of a strong anti-authoritarian bent as a very, very young kid. So I met a woman, I met a woman named Janet Eastman. Actually, I fell in love with her, and I had a love relationship with her. And she was a Quaker. And uh, I went to visit her one time in Portland, Maine. And she took me to a Quaker. Uh, she took me to a Quaker meeting. And at the time, I was living in Syracuse, and I really liked it. And so I joined the Syracuse meeting. And um, I think I like the I like the the lack of hierarchy. I like the idea that um, we could all be prophets in our own ways. It also um, fits with my conception of God. My conception of God is that uh, it's a force for goodness in the world. You know, and the way I think about that is that. Um, in a random universe, okay, and this is the way I think about it, and you can tell me what, what, whether this makes sense to you or not. But see, in a random universe, it would be just as likely that evil would prevail as that good would prevail. 
And I actually thought about what might be a piece of evidence. Well, one piece of evidence is the amount of square miles on the earth in which killing another person is proscribed by law has been increasing steadily over time. So if you came, if you were in, in, on the continent we're on right now, 600 years ago, uh, there was a lot of murder going on that wasn't prescribed by law. That is to say forbidden by law. And so I say that the number of square miles on the earth on which killing another human being is proscribed by law has been increasing steadily. So I think it's probably the whole world now. I doubt if there's any, any part of the world on which you can kill another person and have that not be against the law. And the other, the other example I, I used, what I thought of was the, the way in which mentally ill people are treated. You know, if you went back 500 years ago, people who were experiencing psychotic psychosis were thrown into dungeons. Anyway, so and I think, you know, Quakerism has a, that kind of conception of God, you know. It's the force for goodness. Nothing more than that. But I think it is kind of mysterious, you know, why, why the force for goodness? Where... Where does that come from? Well, and of course, you know, Rebecca, <laughs> when you think about that, that organisms like us developed on this earth just from chemicals and electricity being available here, I mean, it's pretty amazing what's happened on this planet. I mean, really, you know, what? Really? How the hell did that happen? And so I kind of, I guess in that sense, I, I get it how people have a hard time believing in evolution because there has to be something else that enabled this to happen. Yeah, anyway. So, yeah, so Quakerism fits pretty well into, um, into kind of the way I see the world, what I think is important. And, and I do like the peace testimony. Uh, I, I like the the emphasis on equality and peace and simplicity and community, integrity, all of that. I like it, although I don't think I'm a pacifist. I think I'd like to be, but I don't think I am. This is very much in contrast to Tim, for whom the peace testimony is Quakerism's greatest draw. Do you describe yourself as a Quaker? I've been described as that. Um, I've been hanging out with Quakers so long, it's kind of rubbed off on me. But I don't describe myself as a Quaker because there's no such thing as taking the Quaker vows or um, doing anything in front of a Oh, wait a minute. Yes, there is. There is a procedure to say, I'm a Quaker, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. So I wouldn't say that I could. Other people consider me to be a Quaker because I'm so dedicated to nonviolence and um, against war in any form. Where did the passion against war and the passion for nonviolence come from? Long story. <laughs> I was in the second grade. We were passed out this wooden stick that had markings on it said inches 
<clears throat> and on the other side, it said, a good rule to remember, do unto others, or treat everybody like you want to be treated. And I read that and was thinking about the violence on the playground. Tim grew up in Santa Fe, which has a long history of colonization, first by the Spanish and then by the Americans. Because where I grew up, it was an expression of the response to invasion and occupation, where everybody was telling each other how bad it felt to be overrun and discounted as human beings, and whose rights, in some instances, had actually been taken away. <clears throat> so there's all this violence on the playground. And I thought, wait, look, here is the answer on this stick. So I took it on the playground and said, look. And somebody said, yeah, and they grabbed it and hit me with it. So I gave up on that point, went back into class. And ever since then, I've been not wanting to, to hurt anybody or be hurt. And lastly, let's hear from Vicki, the only one of our guests who was brought up as a Quaker. So you, I mean, you grew up as a Quaker. How do you think that has affected your life? Well, I think it's provided some a kind of a stability that I think a lot of people don't have. <clears throat> I remember when we didn't have a yearly meeting when I was little, um, but then they started the yearly meeting in around 1970. And, uh, and I guess kind of, I kind of remember, so I was like maybe in my early twenties or something, you go to college and people would be complaining about, about the old people in their lives and stuff. And then I realized I like them, you know, I like all those old people in my life. <laughs> and I'd go to the yearly meeting and, and see the people who'd come down from Colorado. And I just started realizing what a wonderful thing this was that I knew these people and I'd known them all my life, you know, and that there were these, these, uh, these people that were there and, uh, and had, and had integrity. And so I, I just think that it, it impacted it that way. And I also, I don't know what the last four years, I was noticing, you know, some people get, got real upset with the, uh, the government. And I thought, well, I didn't get raised with the belief that the government was going to have the beliefs that I have. And I think that was kind of another advantage that one didn't expect the, uh, the government to, be supportive of one's beliefs, that you had your beliefs and you lived by them, no matter what else was going on outside. So what about me? I grew up in the Quaker meeting like Vicki and very much agree with her about the stability and community it brought as well as the love for the interesting old people in my life. After all, I am making a podcast about them. But I also agree with my dad and Al, sometimes violence is a lesser evil than doing nothing to stop the suffering of others. Quakerism shaped me in many ways and is the foundation of my worldview. But I don't attend Quaker meeting today and would describe myself as Quakerish rather than a Quaker. That's it for this episode of Life is for the Living. Join us next time when we talk about the emotional life of our guests. If you have any suggestions about future guests, topics, or just want to chat in general, you can reach us at 
at Life is for the L on Twitter or email us at Life is for the Living Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. The Life is for the Living Podcast is written by me, Rebecca Richmond, and produced by Marco Burlow. 